out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 134th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson. He's on the east coast of the United States. I am now in the middle of the United States after four years in Europe and a lot of time in London, just down the street from Abbey Road Studios. I am now back in my home country, but we're still talking about bands that make it in the U.S. or the U.K. Maybe they don't make it both. Maybe they're from one spot and they make it the other, but they don't make it their home country. Still doing reviews of bands that we love, albums on big anniversaries, concerts that we get to go to that we know you're going to like, and on occasion, we get to spotlight things that are coming out soon. Like, we got to spotlight Rival Sons' Dark Fighter album. We had a chance to speak with Scott Holliday a few weeks back. And that was great. A lot of fun. Or we got to tell you about the first two nights of the Metallica M72 World Tour in Amsterdam because I used to live there, had tickets before I had to move back to America, but still went back to do the show so we could review it for you. And I know now Metallica is coming to the States this summer to do their no-repeat weekend, two shows in one city, no repeats. I know a lot of people are looking forward to that, so you can listen to our reviews to hear what you can expect. But this week, we had an opportunity to speak with a rock writer that we had a lot of respect for, someone who we've been reading and watching on TV for years, uh, and that's Mick Wall. Mick Wall wrote for Kerrang! back in the day. He's founder of Classic Rock Magazine. He's written articles in newspapers and magazines all over the world, and he's written, I don't know, a couple of dozen books. I remember reading his on Black Sabbath a long time ago. I was thinking, wow, this guy's a really cool writer. Uh, but I have the Enter Night on Metallica. If you want blood on ACDC, he kind of ghost wrote or, or helped put together the Ronnie James Dio biography after Ronnie got it started. Uh, but then he sadly left us. The Iron Maiden Run to the Hills, I believe, is a great telling of the story of Iron Maiden. Maybe the best that there is out there. Who knows? But when they said he was going to write a book about the Eagles, I thought, well, that's interesting. They're not a British band. They're not a hard rock or a heavy metal band. And he wasn't really around during their heyday. It wasn't like he was hanging out with them. He was just a teenager, I feel like, or or early 20s in the late 70s when he was just starting to get started as a writer and hanging out with people like Black Sabbath. So I said, well, that's an interesting take. Not to mention, that's a band we kind of know a lot about uh, in America, right? I mean, they've been documented very well. Their History of the Eagles DVDs were something I watched over and over as soon as they came out. And they are kind of, you know, a very American story. They do have fans all around the world, but I feel like their popularity is huge in America. Some of the biggest selling albums of all time. And they're just kind of another band in most of the rest of the world. So I thought getting mixed take on it would be great. And I was right. His book is brilliant. It's a great read. We were fortunate enough to get a copy of it. We said, yes, can we please have Mick on the show? I think you'll find Mick is very gracious. He tells a great story. He makes time. He listens to our silly questions, even though he's asked much better questions in his life and been asked probably much better questions in his life. He had a good time with us. We had a good time with him. And we even got to talk a little bit about hanging out with some of his rock stars, whether it's Black Sabbath or Steve Clark for Def Leppard and more. So I think you're going to like this show, and we're going to get to talking to Mick here very shortly. But first, got to take care of a little bit of business. As usual, we like to mention we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family of shows. It's a network of about 100 different shows, 
music related, not all of them rock and roll, but there is something in there for everybody. And we've had a lot of our fellow podcasters on our show. We have guested on a few of the other shows. You can go to PantheonPodcast.com to see them all. There's also an app where you can get all of our shows here in the U.S. if you want to check that out. Follow them at Pantheon Pods. But we have to give a shout out to our amazing sponsors at RareVinyl.com. Guys, Rare Vinyl has over a quarter of a million items in stock from albums to CDs to DVDs to tour programs to in-store displays to autographed items. Anything from the world of rock and roll, you can find it at RareVinyl.com. They're based in the UK, but they ship all over the world. And they have a Five-star rating from Trust Radius. I've been to their offices. I've been to their warehouse. They have an amazing team. They do a lot of hard work to procure these albums and these items, keep them in good shape, and then make sure they get shipped to you in the same condition in which they were sold. And you can use code UGLY, U-G-L-Y. You go, you check out, use code UGLY. You're going to save yourself 10%. So if you want an Eagles album, or if you want a book, maybe, that Mick Wall had written, or an old copy of Kerrang, maybe, that they have laying around there somewhere that has an article of his, hey, go to rarevinyl.com. Use the code UGLY. Save yourself 10%. And if you get something expensive enough, it might even knock out all of your shipping charges. Wouldn't that be great, right? So go to rarevinyl.com. I know we got a lot of record collectors out there. Go there. Use the code UGLY. Save yourself 10%. Now back to the book, Life in the Fast Lane. Easy read. All of his books to me, I find, are fairly easy to read. He creates a world that you can relate to, that you can better understand, and then puts in some of the details that you're looking for. And yes, a band like the Eagles that are very well documented and have this history of infighting and not getting along and trying to be perfectionists in the studio, yeah, there's some of that in there. But I thought he did a great job of setting the tone, kind of showing who everybody was before, during, and after the Eagles, and why they were who they were, and how it all came together, fell apart, came back together. Great read. It's out July 11th. I highly recommend picking it up. It'll fit well in with all of your other rock books. Whether you're an Eagles fan or not, I feel like it tells the story of 70s LA, post-Manson murders, post-Beatles. So there's this kind of vacuum of who's going to be in charge, what's going to come next. But there's also already this system built to create huge rock stars. And who came out of them? the 70s LA? Well, that was the Eagles. And also Fleetwood Mac, who had kind of been a blues combo that did pretty well while the Beatles were still around. Now they have pretty girls in the band and big pop songs, and they're huge. So Southern California did have something to do with the music of the 70s. Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, on and on. And he captures it all in his book, Life in the Fast Lane. So we're going to talk, me and Jackson, for a few minutes before Mick comes on. And then you've got the legendary rock writer Mick Wall talking about his book, Life in the Fast Lane, about the Eagles, right here on The Wolf. Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Had any mixed stuff before you read Life in the Fast Lane? No, this was my first my first uh, entry into this catalog, but I don't think it will be the last because I really like the way that he he told the story and framed it and made it compelling not only for the band but for the uh, the other characters too in the story. Yeah, and I've I've read a few of his books. I can't say I've read them all because there's like two dozen of them. <laughs> <laughs> but they i mean they're generally speaking they're on bands that we like you know mm-hmm. like our favorite bands yeah the first one i ever wrote, uh, read was the book he did about sabbath and it was kind of like the sabbath at the end of days right when ozzy's coming out of the band and and he's he had access to them like he's in their limos and stuff and he's hanging out with them at their hotels and things like that mm-hmm. which must have been kind of at the beginning of his career because like oh he's been doing this for 45 years now i'm like yeah and that was about 45 years ago when all that was going down I just remember, you know, reading this, it's like, oh, you know, he he doesn't just tell you, and then on this day they played this gig, or and then they went to the studio and recorded this track. You know, now it's it gives you kind of a perspective of what's going on, not only in their world as far as like management and relationships and things like that, but it's also kind of the world at large, like what's happening globally or at least macro in their society that kind of gets them to make the music that they make, you know. Right. And and that's a good point because it, the band doesn't exist in a vacuum. There are yes. other external sources, either whether it's, I mean, he goes into, uh, there's the political deal kind of at the end, right. you know, there's relationships, there's, you know, who they hooked up with as far as like, you know, personally and professionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so all of that goes together and, and it makes the story complete. But yeah, it was interesting because it's it's it, he took you out of kind of the late '60s into the what was happening in the early '70s, especially in LA, and how the uh, the band found each other, got together, and formed what we have today. Yeah, that's right. And uh, it's, he's got a great ACDC book. If you want blood, I think he did Enter Night for Metallica. He was a big author at Kerrang back in the day. I think he helped found Classic Rock Magazine, which, as you know, I love. Uh, and is a great source of information and sometimes inspiration for the stuff that we do here on the show. I mean, it, it kind of keeps you up to date on what these kind of legacy artists are doing now, as well as newer bands like the Rival Sons, who we are suddenly very big fans of right now. It's, <laughs> it's like classic rock magazine. We'll kind of keep those people in the forefront, you know, whereas Rolling Stone's like, no, we want to do a lipa. Well, she lip sinks. You know, I call her lipa sinking. Yeah, but she looks great while she's doing it. That's all people care about. <laughs> so. Well, that is true. 
I don't know about all they care about, but the look great part is true. But yeah, so it's interesting to get his perspective on this. Like you said, he he's lived the life. He's in the he's in that world. So it's not just some random guy. And you can kind of tell also he's not really a fanboy either, which is mm-hmm. nice. He's kind of he's kind of giving it to you, you know, warts and all. Well, that's right. And I always kind of wonder, I mean, you know, part of our show is the dichotomy between who makes it big in America versus who makes it big in the UK. Some mm. do well one place and not the other. I mean, I think the Eagles have done fine in the UK over the decades, but they're an American success story a lot more than they are a UK or European mm. success story. That's for sure. So I, I'm just curious about his perspective on what do the UK fans think about them. And, and the way he did the synopsis of the show they did in Hyde Park last summer, I thought, pretty well broken down because I've never seen the Eagles by choice. I've had a lot of opportunities to see them. Once they kicked Felder out of the band, I kind of lost interest. Mm-hmm. And when he's talking about, you know, people are not really standing up and shouting, but they're singing along. Lots of women, a lot of American girls are there swaying and sing, swinging along. And I'm like, yeah, see, this is a very American band to me. That whole peaceful, easy feeling doesn't translate all over the world necessarily, right? Well, Maybe, but then maybe also were they selling kind of a an American dream to people? You know, like if you lived maybe not so much in the UK, but you know, we talked about U2 in uh in Ireland. Like if you lived in some place that you were like, I don't really like this, mm-hmm. and you could hear this kind of glorified American songbook, did that kind of give you a wow, I'd really like to be there. I'd really love to, you know, driving through the desert. That was always their big thing. And right. um you know, Hotel California, what does it really mean? What are they saying? What's going on in the United States? That's a crazy place. Yeah. Uh, even for me growing up on the East Coast, it was still like, yeah, California is the Wild West. It's where dreams will come true, but dreams will also die pretty hard and turn also. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's why do they think they have such a huge homelessness problem there? Well, in some ways, it's because. That's just where everybody ends up. You just kind of keep going west, keep going right. west until there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> but also, yeah, because there's such great fortunes made in California, there are folks at the bottom rung also uh, yeah. down there. So, yeah, it's heaven or hell. I mean, look, I, I'll admit because the Eagles are pretty well documented here in America. And if you want to know their story, you can. And between the history of the Eagles DVDs and, and, and movies, you know, that came out, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something like that. And Felder's book, you know, Heaven or Hell. I knew most of this stuff already, plus some mm-hmm. behind the music stuff and, and things like that. I, but it was still great to to hear some new stories and to get some new perspective on why certain things worked out the way they did. And it's, God, it's kind of just a classic American tale of excess, right? I mean, they all come in with nothing. They've got an idea to be this, you know, kind of country rock folk band where everybody's together. We're all wearing jeans. And then by the end, just a bunch of rich American assholes who don't <laughs> like each other. <laughs> Basically, well, right? <laughs> yeah. And and we've kind of touched on this point before. All of the, there are so many bands that, you know, you think to yourself, why, why weren't these people bigger? Why, you know, how come they never, you know, blossomed like other bands in, in particular the Eagles? You need somebody, or in this case, two persons mm-hmm. who are not going to give up. They they know they're going to be. They know they have the capacity to be stars. They know they have the the goods to write music that people want to listen to, and they are just relentless. 
And that's what you had with with Fry and Henley. They were they knew they could get there, and they, anybody who wasn't on board with them as they go through in the book gets kind of crushed under the wheels and not invited to the final party. Yeah, and everyone around them knew it, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. reason David Geffen sold, uh, you know, signed them in the first place, like, okay, this guy Glenn is a hard charger. He's a Type yeah. A. He's going to go out and push and get stuff done. This guy Don has this extraordinary voice that I can sell all over the world. So, okay, we'll we'll start with them, right? And kind of go from there. And then, you know, even later on, it's like Randy doesn't really want to be in charge of anything. And, mm-hmm. and Felder's, okay, look, if they want to run stuff, let him run it. That's fine. Now, eventually he would have a problem with that. But he's like, who cares if they're back there looking at contracts with Irving? I'm, I'm a rock star and I'm making a lot of money and I'm having fun yeah. in the front of the plane, right? Yeah, and then you know you they get to the the almost the end, and you talk about Timmy Schmidt coming in, and mm-hmm. you know just somebody who's I mean that's really what they were looking for at that point in time, somebody who was just happy to be there. Right, he was never going to be upset because he never had anything in the band. He was just a paid employee. He got the golden ticket when he wrote "I Can't Tell You Why" to go right. on the long run. It's like wow, I just got here, and this is I wrote one of these singles. This is fantastic. So at that point in time, yeah, that's what they wanted. They didn't want anybody. Well, I think that nah, I don't care what you think. Doesn't this matter what's what happening. Think. Yeah. Your thoughts are irrelevant. Correct. You know, I run this show. And yeah. the fly in the oint is Joe Walsh because he comes in as a star in his own right, right? I mean, the first hmm. four guys weren't real big stars. When they brought Felder in, he was not a star. When they had Joe <laughs> Walsh, yeah, he's already had success. He's had success as a founding member of the James Gang. He had success as a solo artist with some mm-hmm. big songs. And they brought him in to, to play with him sometimes on stage, you know, thanks to their manager, Irving Azoff, who Don used to colloquially say, he may be Satan, but he's our Satan. <laughs> but that's what you need. That's you, exactly you, what you need. Yeah, <laughs> you have to have somebody who comes in there and... You know, the whole thing with the lawsuit against Warner Brothers or whatever record company they were with, you know, because he wanted more money. But at that point in time, Don and and Glenn, not only did they really not know that, they had no idea how to get it done. But he was like, "Okay, just relax, boys. I'll handle this. I'm going to get you your money. Yeah, it was interesting that that kind of the parallel story of Geffen and the rest of those guys. Hi, this is Mick Wall, and you are listening to the Ugly American werewolf in london there he is (laughs) how are you mr mcwall good thank you how are you doing well thank you i'm mac b or you can call me the wolf here in louisville that is action jackson that way uh on my screen anyway uh, from the east coast uh, of uh of america and welcome to the ugly american werewolf in london well as I'm very, very delighted to be here. I am the ugly Irishman in England. <laughs> uh, no, well, no, we uh, we appreciate you being on so much as big rock fans who have, I've read several of your books. Not all of them. I, I'm not as avid a reader as I should Listen, be. even I haven't read all of them. There's too <laughs> many, you know. Yeah, but no, but as a, as a rock, I mean, you're more than just a rock writer, man. You're one of the guys in the world who's keeping rock alive. And yes, sometimes you might be a little harsh critically on them, but that's how you separate the good from the uh, from the also rands there. And all your time with Kerrang! Look, I love Classic Rock Magazine. As soon as I found it, I'm like, Jackson, there's this big, glossy British bag that we got to have every month, man. You know, it's... This is great for research. It keeps us in the know of, of up-and-coming bands. It keeps us in the know of the bands that we love that are still doing great stuff. So 
for your everything you've done to keep rock alive and keep going. Thank you, sir. Well, you're very welcome. It's a pleasure. And are we recording yet? Because I was going to explain why it can be harsh sometimes. Are we recording or not? We, we are recording, yes. But oh, if good. You don't, okay, okay. Okay, yeah, yeah. Go right ahead, yeah. The, the, the harsh thing, I don't set out to be harsh on anybody. Right. But I don't set out to write the books so the bands can read them and go wow aren't i great you know right. I, I i i give zero consideration to the feelings of the musicians i only care about one person and that's the reader mm-hmm. um, okay. and i think um i hope that's what distinguishes my work so for instance to give you one quick example when i did my led zeppelin book when giants walk, walk the earth, earth. yeah you know, I, I'm as big a Led Zeppelin fan as anybody. You know, one of the first albums I ever bought when I was 14 years old was Houses of the Holy. Yeah. But I'd already borrowed Zep 4 and Zep 2 from friends at school. And then in the 80s, I got to know Jimmy pretty well, actually, for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, and Robert, and I interviewed John Paul and, and blah, 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 all of them. Grant, I nearly did Grant's memoir at one point, and then bless him, he died. Yeah. And when I set out to write that book, I mean, this is a, this is a kind of microcosm of how I work. I couldn't understand why Led, Led Zeppelin didn't just reform. You know, do a Stones, do the Who, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd. You know, you don't have to be friends. You don't have right. to hang out. You have to be buddies. We all get it, you know. Just, just why not? play yeah, and everyone loses a drummer at some point just get another of drummer, course right? they yeah. do and, yeah. and i made the point in the book you know if they'd lost bonham after the second album would they mm. have quit of course they wouldn't have quit they, no they didn't quit because bonham died they quit because the band had died but the point is is by the time i got to the end of that because jimmy jimmy always wants to do the band mm-hmm. uh, right uh, you know, Jimmy always wanted to do it, still wants to do it. Robert, right. never, 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 never. Never. By the end of the book, I got it. I totally got what Robert was talking about. Uh, so there is a band I already felt I knew everything there was to know. I- I'd been friends with Jimmy for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I'd interviewed everybody. But you let the story reveal itself to you. And and by the time I got to the end of that book, I realized I never, ever really knew that story or those people as well as I thought, because I'd always been coming to it from the perspective of a fan. Right. Um, uh, and there's one thing to love music and appreciate music and get into it, you know. But when you're telling a story... Uh, when I'm telling a story, I, 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 you know, you can't assume you already know it. You have to go out and see what you can see. And so regardless of my feelings for the music, I, I, I truly, truly try and tell the story and, and, and the real story as far as I can uncover it. And, and of course, what I've discovered over the years, I mean, I kind of already knew this, but it, it became more and more apparent to me as I'd be researching these stories on the doors. Mm-hmm. Sabbath, Metallica, the Eagles, Hendrix, Lou Reed, was nearly all the previous books had been written from a fan perspective. They kind of already had the picture in their head and they were just sort of making the pieces fit, you know? It's almost like a ghost-written autobiography, a lot of these. Like, they just want Lou Reed to like them. Or they're such big Metallica fans, like, I just want James to hear this and, and think I'm cool, right? Absolutely. And of course, I, I left that behind decades ago. And yeah. 
But I mean, it's funny. I remember reading an Amazon review a while ago, years ago, of my Metallica book. And it was this kid, clearly a fan, bless his mm-hmm. heart. And he was saying, this guy, <laughs> it's just his opinion. And I'm like, yes, yeah. <laughs> that is exactly right. As opposed to explaining how awesome they were, you know, um, mm-hmm. And all these things, like you said about Bonham, you know, I mean, same with Metallica, seeing as I mentioned them, you know, Cliff Burton died. Cliff would have wanted us to carry on. Cliff was plotting to fucking get rid of Lars and bring in (laughs) Dave Lombardo. (laughs) I mean, it's just this bullshit orthodoxy that comes up over the years and it just gets reprinted, reprinted, reprinted. When I did my Jimi Hendrix book, because, you know, you end up reading all the other books and researching. I mean, you spe- I sp- that's where I spend most of my time. And it's all about, I mean, you'd think Jimi Hendrix was white reading these books, you know. Mm. It's all about he's in London, he's with Clapton. It's like he's a black guy from America, from a very, very poor background, who'd been living on his wits his whole life, you know. Yeah. Never mind fucking Eric Clapton. Fuck all that shit. He was only in London for about nine months, you know, but (laughs) every time you see a picture of Hendrix, it's Carnaby Street and Swing in London. And so you got to kind of just try your best to just forget all of that and go, who the fuck are we actually dealing with here? Who is this guy or this band? So it's not that I want to be harsh. I just don't want to be a pussy. I, I don't want to be an average guy churning out another book, basically the same old shit you've already read. Yeah. And because I've worked in the business for over 40 years, I've worked as a record label exec. I've worked in management. I've run publicity companies. I've done my own shows. I've mm-hmm. done tours. I don't look up to any of these people. You know, they, 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 they're just people. That's and right. that to me makes them more interesting and makes the music more interesting when you discover that it's like I always say, you know, bad people can do really good things and mm-hmm. often good people can do terrible things. And those roles reverse on a day to day basis. It's not about he was a people say to me, uh, oh, you met whoever, you know, is he a nice guy? <laughs> no. I mean, <laughs> he, Today he is, tomorrow. I mean, mate, is he a nice? I don't fucking know. Am I a nice guy? Sometimes, yeah. and sometimes I'm an asshole. You know, depends on who you're asking. It just depends where you are and and who's watching you. But most singers, most bands, but mainly singers. You know, when they walk in a room to be interviewed or they're going somewhere to 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 promote something or shake hands at a record company or whatever, of course they're a nice guy. I mean, that's their job. At that's that, their job, yeah. You know, it's like saying, uh, oh, my waiter, he's such a great guy. You know what he did? He took my order. He brought the food. He smiled. <laughs> that's a nice guy. No, man, he's a waiter. He's a good waiter. I love that. But is he a nice guy? Who gives a fuck? Did he bring the food? Was it good? That's all that matters. But because rock stardom is so elevated, I mean, I, you know, I, I know all this because I, I was the fan for, 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 you know, a lot of my Sure. Life. Yeah. Um, I get that. I get that. I still am a fan, not of any musicians, but maybe a certain writer or something. So I do get it, but it's not my starting point. My starting point is, 
is well let's see where the cards fall let's uh let's not protect these people and and let's uh, see what the story see what the story says yeah well, and I like that because the Eagles, they certainly have that dichotomy sometimes as individuals and as a band. You think, oh, well, they're doing great things. They've got that peaceful, easy thing, feeling or they're doing the no nukes concert, you know, which is good for the earth and all that kind of yep. stuff. But then they're also doing nasty things to teenage girls behind closed doors. And they're, uh, you know. Uh, 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 and nasty things to each other. To each other, yes. To to their fellow bandmates, you know. And kind of right in front of their face, you know. It's like all bands are on the verge of breaking up at all times, if you really think about it, you know. Yeah, actually, that, that's one of the reasons I, I, I was drawn to the Eagles, because... I always felt they got a bad deal, you know, because the the book goes out of its way to try and remind everybody that, you know, when they started out, that Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, you can't, you can't, it's against the law to say anything against those guys mm. you know, or, or um, Joni Mitchell or Graham Parsons or yada, yada, yada. But the Eagles, because they were a hit right out of the gate, you know, and because they were contrived, Oh, no. You mean they thought about what they were doing? I mean, of course they did. It was the 70s. The rules, most of the rules had been written and they made the most of it. And at the end of the day, they made some fantastic music, fantastic music. Does that make them nice guys? Not in a million years. I mean, they might be sometimes, but that's not the real story unless you are a fan and unless you want to believe in Santa Claus and <laughs> yeah. and, and have a Disney a Disney version, which is great for kids, you know, but not for me. Yeah, what, one of the things that I really liked about this book was the fact how you painted the picture of how what the scene was like before they started in the late 60s, early 70s in L.A., how they got started because the band didn't exist in a vacuum. There were external forces that put them together. So kind of the lead up to how they got started was really interesting. And there was a lot of stuff that, that I didn't know interplay between the people, you know, the scene at the Troubadour with Jackson Brown, and you were talking about Graham Parsons, Linda Ronstadt, how that all came together to birth this band and have them achieve what they did. Very interesting. Oh well, thank you. I mean, I, I mean, I, I found it interesting too. I mean, I always say on a personal level, you know, the research is the most enjoyable part for me because I'm finding out stuff I didn't know. Or, or the big trick is to even when you you do know the facts or you feel you know the timeline or you know you're because because everything is out there these days. You know, we all kind of know the outline. You know. And then you get in amongst the weeds and 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 you try and connect the dots and put it together and and just use your own experience and imagine it as a human, not just a guy that knows the biz, but as a human being uh, uh, in a time and a place. Try and inhabit that space and time. I had none of that was planned. I, I had no idea it was going to go that way. About halfway through, you're kind of going, "Oh God, what have I done?" You know. <laughs> Does anybody care about this shit? Or just, should I just get straight onto the third album? You know, it's like, but I thought, well, no, I, I find it interesting. I, I'm, I actually find this very interesting that that milieu of the troubadour, and because it wasn't the sixties, right? You know, it, it, it came from the sixties, but by the time you get to the seventies, you know, it, it's like going from black and white TV to color. You know, it's 
you're over the other side of the rainbow and uh, and the Beatles are gone and Dylan's in hiding and 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 the stones aren't as good as they used to be and uh and and everything's kind of up for grabs and you know I kind of wish I'd be I always wish I'd been there you know I, I find mm. the 70s particularly delightful because mm. I was too young to have been at the Troubadour in 1971. That's where we. Uh, yeah, so so it's kind of just kind of you know making that atmosphere and 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 trying to show how it's not. He's a nice guy. He's a bad guy. Oh, why did he do that? Why? It's just look. This is what was happening, and and everybody's just doing the best they can to to make it. They mm-hmm. want to make it. Right. Well, and, and the other thing too is, you know, you know how the story ends. You, I mean, if you're if you're even a, I mean, th- there's been a million documentaries on the Eagles, like you know that the infighting, you know how it ended. But to hear how it began, and you think to yourself, if these events hadn't happened in that specific order, none of this would have come to fruition. You know, had they not, had David Geffen not been involved, and Irving, a- and all the the cocktail that came together, one misstep. You wouldn't have the story. No, I, I, I always find the big. It's like movies, you know. I always find the beginning or some great box set on TV or Netflix or something. You know, I always find the origin stories really interesting because because you kind of don't know. You know, eventually he will become Superman or something. <laughs> you know, but but the, the beginning, if it's told right, is always much more interesting. Uh, and you can relate because mm-hmm. uh, most of these people started with absolutely nothing. You right. know, Geffen was a guy who who kind of snuck in the back door in the mail room and turned <laughs> up at six in the morning to read everybody else's memos. Yeah, right. I mean, that'd be like packing into the email these days. You know, I mean, yeah. kind of like he'd be fired if they caught him. Mm-hmm. But he had that. He had he had that grit in the oyster to make the pearl. He had that he had that little bit of something. Yeah, that and it's that little mentality. bit of something that makes him start a label, pick up Laura Nairo and and all mm-hmm. these people, not all of whom make it. Yeah. Well, so my my curiosity came around why I mean why the Eagles? I mean I I understand they're fascinating and seeing history of the Eagles. Read Felder's book Heaven and Hell, which was a page turner for me. But then of course. Henley and Fry hated it because it told stuff that they didn't want anybody to know about. But see, like yeah. with your Sabbath book, you know, you were in the limos with them for a while. You're going to visit Bill Ward in the hotel room to hear the new tune that has no lyrics. And you're like, what the fuck is this? You know, but, <laughs> but you know, but like with Metallica, you covered them pretty much their whole careers. The Eagles, you kind of missed, right? You, you yeah. never really yeah. knew them in their heyday, certainly. Maybe after they got back together, you could have spent some time with them. But but you didn't know them in the '70s there, and then yeah, to to interview uh, folks and, and you're not going to get Henley right. He, he don't want to talk about that stuff, right? So you well, got to interview everybody else. <laughs> no, well, absolutely. But you know, I I, I wasn't there for the Doors. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and my Doors is one of my favorite books that I've done. I mean, I did interview. Uh, the surviving members and lots of other people that were there, but I never met Jim Morrison. You know, right, just course. like everybody else, I read all the the books and He Is a God and all this business. Hendrix, you know, I I I was twelve when Hendrix died. I mean, I, I never had any interaction with him other than with his music. Mm-hmm. I didn't interview a lot of people. I'd interviewed the other guys in the Experience and a lot of people that knew Jimmy. Not just the experience, but band of gypsies, all kinds yeah. of people. I think it's a bit like, you know, you're telling history, 
you know, if if I was going to write a book about the Second World War, you know, or I was going to write a book about Buddha, or I was going to write a book about Marlon Brando mm-hmm. or whatever, of course, if you've got a personal connection, you know, that's that's the icing on the cake. But for me, the cake isn't necessarily that. And 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 the closer you get, the more access you have often the more you are denied the opportunity to try and think clearly about it, ah. uh, not see it just from their side. I mean, I've ghosted memoirs mm-hmm. uh, and th- and they can be amazing if you get the right subject. You know, it hasn't come out yet, but uh, I ghosted the memoir of Doc McGee, really? you know, who now manages Kiss, but in the past managed Bon Jovi, Motley Crue. Yeah. He also managed Diana Ross, Mink Deville, many, many people. By the time he was in his mid-20s, long before he got in the music business, just from the drug business, he had an apartment on Central Park West in New York. He had a, a big house in Miami, and he owned his own island, uh, his own island in the Bahamas, and he was 26, okay? Cocaine pays. That's a fucking story, you know? <laughs> and, and Doc is a fantastic raconteur hugely funny but that man has done some shit and, <laughs> and so i'm happy in that case you know you want to get as close you want i was like glue i was like his second skin for some months there i still have hundreds of recordings that never went into that book because there were just too many stories on the other hand I, when i ghosted the iron maiden biography i got closer to the real story than anybody ever did but at the same time, you know, their manager was still thinking of their plans for next year and the year after that. And so there were certain things in there we had to take out because it might harm a certain relationship or business oh, yeah. project or, you know. Um, so it, it, it's degrees of Doc was all in, you know. I mean, I oh. interviewed guys that went to jail for him and connected guys and all sorts of stuff. But that that was a one in a lifetime thing. You know, the, the, the other ghosted memoirs, you're, you're there to serve the person. Dio, I, I ghosted Dio's memoir. It's a great read. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I yeah. knew Ronnie for 30 years and uh, he had begun, he had begun writing his own story before he died. So I was able to put it together from all the archive interviews and conversations we'd had and Wendy helped and a great deal. And, um, but again, you know, I'm, you know, it's not me, telling you about rainbow or black sabbath it's ronnie right and so you have to honor that contract with my own books i i serve no more only one master and that is the reader i want to you know i've got to keep it honest keep it real i mean a lot of my book you know metallica you know james hetfield will never speak to me again is that right oh, oh he has trust issues and right feels i broke all that and i don't think i did it wasn't a, a kiss and tell it wasn't a ooh, look how awful they are it was me trying to do them the honor of telling it like it is like a big boy a grown-up mm-hmm. let's get real version lars still calls me and goes hey it's your favorite drummer <laughs> because in the book more than many times i point out how he's not actually very good as a drummer you know um but he has a sense of humor about it led zeppelin page who i my relationship with page went quite deep way beyond music or books or whatever 
It was personal. Okay. And um, he did some, in to this day, if you interview him, people do still ask him about the book. He always insists he's never read it. And yet the first time I saw him after the book had come out, we were at this event and um, he saw me and he came over and he, he whispered in my ear, I think you are fucking cheeky. <laughs> And a, a mutual friend told me he'd read every fucking word. I bet he did. Uh, Guns and Roses. You know, I was told by his own manager that when my biography of Axel came out, War, in like 2007, something like that. Yeah. He said to me, Axel was deeply, deeply hurt by that book. He read every single word. And Wait a minute, though. Wait a minute. He calls you out in Get in the Ring, okay? 1991, <laughs> Jax and I are freshmen in college. That's how we meet roommates. In September, these two albums, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, come out. We listen to them all. And then there's this song, Get in the Ring, where he's calling out Bob Cuccioni Jr. for spin and Mick Wall from Kerrang! Challenge you to fight. And then you write a book that he doesn't like and he's surprised about it? Grow up, Axel. Come on. <laughs> Well, that is crazy. I mean, I still have a gold record for GNR Lies that Axel gave me for all the wonderful help and support and all that kind of stuff. And to this day, you know, Slash and I, we get on great. I mean, I've changed a lot over the years. You know, in the 80s, I actually had long hair and weighed <laughs> about 30 pounds less, you know, and, and looked about 30 years younger. <laughs> and um, uh, I remember a few years ago, but seeing Slash and thinking, I don't even know if he'll even recognise me. And of course he did. And it's always hugs and kisses and, you know, we do loads of work together. But at the end of the day, I, even if we didn't, that isn't why I'm doing the books. I'm doing the books because I'm a writer, because mm. I love, I, I, when I'm not writing, I'm reading. Uh, research is reading or listening or, you know, just thinking a lot about stuff. I mean, even though I didn't write much about Henley and Frey in the 80s, I spent a lot of time looking at their lives and the work that they did in the 80s. Okay. So what you get in the book is really a distillation. I mean, with the, with the Eagles, there's another thing going on as well, which for me began really with the Hendrix book in 2019, which was two riders were approaching. And that was, in that instance, it was because there's like a library of Hendrix books and document. It's like, it's like doing a biography of Jesus Christ. You know, right. it's like, oh God, you know, what hasn't been told, you know. And I found a way to get into that, I felt, that was hopefully evocative of the era same vernacular even when it's brutal even when it's delightful don't take your foot off the pedal you know mm -hmm. um, and i found that was a really new way to tell a story i mean that there was one twist in that i mean it begins with hendrix being murdered page one with the eagles i felt a similar thing because as the years have gone by actually interviewing the principals is not very instructive you know i mean i mean mm -hmm. jimmy page who i must have interviewed a million times doesn't really always have much interesting to say because they're doing interviews. Right. It's when the thing has been put away and you're hanging out and chatting and, you know, having a laugh and stuff comes up. And Don Henley, I can't imagine learning anything from Don that I didn't already know. Right. Except he's not going to put it, he's not going to express it to me in a way that I find real or that I find three-dimensional or that I find particularly self-aware. You know, he's he's got so many skeletons in the cupboard. Goodness, yes. He doesn't want to drag them out now. There's, no, there's nothing in it for him. No. There is nothing, there's nothing. It's not in his interest. 
And he's not a 22-year-old kid who wants to just impress you. He doesn't give a fuck. Um, So the best way around that, I think, is to go, okay, that's you. I get all that. I don't even need to interview you because I know exactly the deal. Let's go around that. Let's go around Mm. that. Let's see. Let's have a good look at that space. And in that way, you kind of you 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 see the shape he made in that space and you can really learn a lot from that. And of course, you know, I've been in the business since 77. Someone once said to me, once you've met three rock stars, you've met them all. (laughs) Uh, Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. In fact, I know it's not necessarily true, but but there's a lot of truth to it. And particularly when you walk through the door and you're doing a book. People really feel that weight, you know, as opposed to, I mean, I do newspaper articles. Sure. I did one, uh, came out on the cover of uh, uh, the review section of a newspaper just a few days ago. It's forgotten the next day. It's gone. Book. (gasps) I've never been sued over any magazine or newspaper story I've written. And I've done them for magazines and newspapers all over the world. I've never been sued for any television or radio or podcast or anything I've said at a show. I've had lawyers sending letters and threatening all kinds of shit over books. So it becomes, you know, maybe 30 years ago, the interview would have been more valuable for me because just to be in the room with someone like that, Mm -hmm. you know, you absorb a lot even before you've said a word, you, you, you know, you, oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. You know, but, I, man, I've been there and back so many times. You know, I, I don't have the T-shirt. I sell the T-shirts. <laughs> the t-shirts that's right. <laughs> well, you know, you were talking about uh, it, Don Henley in particular. You know, I would imagine at this point in time, a lot of these stories, he's told himself over and over and over again. Like, it's now a kind of polished up version of what really happened. So if you talk to somebody else who was there, somebody in the orbit, they can tell you, well, that's 70% true. But here's what <laughs> re- here's what he's either omitting or misremembering about the story. Listen, I did, um, I ghosted a memoir for, he's not, status, status quo are not big in the US. In the US, that's right. They had like one hit single a million years ago. But in Britain and Europe, particularly Britain, I mean, they're just enormous. Huge, yeah. I, they're, they're singer Francis Rossi. I ghosted his memoir a few years ago. And we did a, a tour based on the book because it was a big hit book, book here. We did 36 shows around the UK, me and him on the stage. I'm interviewing him, but it, it, it it's queuing him up to tell great stories. Sure. And uh, and over the course of it was seven weeks, 36 shows. We did it all again when the paperback came out, 56 shows. Wow. And by now, you know, we're sleep. I'm sleepwalking through it. He is. But his manager who was a very old friend of mine, Simon. I'd known Simon for years before he began managing Quo. We were having lunch after the second tour. He said to me, because he sat in the audience a few nights, he said, you know, there's hardly a fucking word of truth in anything (laughs) Francis says on that stage. Because he's telling stories I don't recognise, and I was in the room. Right. (laughs) So we are talking about some of the most delusional people on earth who... Never have a waking, unless it's their wife or their kids, never have a waking moment where anyone says, oh, shut up. That's bullshit. (laughs) Never, never. And then you factor in drugs and stuff like that, and they're not going to remember clearly anyway, right? No. Uh, And they remember what they want to remember. Yes. (laughs) 
I guess we all do. I guess we all do. But I think because, you know, from a very young age, their 20s, particularly, say, the Eagles, where as they're coming along, the 60s are ebbing away, but the 70s are rushing in. Mm -hmm. And superstardom is is a real thing. It's like the aliens have landed. I mean, it really is another world. I, I, I think, I, I don't think they know what the truth about anything is. I think they kind of have to rely on these narratives that they build up for themselves because they don't know. No mm. one ever tells them. That's the truth, yeah. They will swap war stories, but I guess it's like don't look down. You know, yeah, let's not do that. You know, let's <laughs> not go there. In fact, there is no there. You know, uh, what are you yeah. talking? Yeah. The, one of the things that I really liked about this book is that it, nobody was really the nobody was really a good guy and nobody was really a bad guy. Like you really kind of gave the picture of how these things came together and, you know, how the band members fell off and why. And, you know, it wasn't. It was just it was interesting to hear the story because, you know, again, if you talk to person A, they're going to tell you this part of it. You know, I was in the wrong. You know, they fired me. They got and then person B is going to tell you, well, not really, because you were having external problems. So, yeah, just the dynamic, the the whole thing I mean, was just a fascinating read. Oh, thank you. I mean, I hope there's a few laughs in there somewhere mm. as well. But I, I, I think I think truth, you know, what is truth? I don't know if there is such a thing as truth in the purely objective this is the unarguable never changing story you know i think these things just are amorphous they just continually evolve they go backwards as well as forwards and i think therefore what i particularly say with the eagles uh try to do is go okay if i was to try and tell everything you know, my I mean, I've got about half a million words of research and interviews and blah, 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 blah. No one wants that. You know, we're not going to put a 10 encyclopedia edition of, you know. Right. You want to, for me, it's a book. You know, for me, it's not really about music. It's about a book. And I am the biggest book guy in the world. You know, I mean, I if I showed you my appallingly distressed and messy office right now, the only thing you'd really notice is the amount of books, books. and magazines and god knows what else just strewn like I, i'm like a samuel beckett character up to my neck in books and shit <laughs> it's a book so i want it to be an entertainment entity that stands alone so that if you don't know anything about the eagles but you like reading great books great stories you'll enjoy this but at the same time, if you do know about the Eagles, which most of us do, you're going to find something interesting here that you're not going to find on Wikipedia. You're not going mm. to find necessarily in the DVDs because, again, they're all very carefully curated. And also, I'm not a big fan of oral histories. I don't need to hear from everybody. I don't need to hear what it was like on a Tuesday. Was it raining? Was it sunny? I was in a mood. I want to distill it into... I was going to say an entertainment. I, I hope it's more, it's not as two dimensional as that, but as a kind of insightful evocation mm. of an era, of a place, of a thing. Um, so, of course, there's music. Of course, it's all that stuff. But I could be writing about a sports guy or, 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 a, or, a, or a movie guy or an artist sure. or wh whatever. It, it's the story, it's how strange life can be. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and the fun we can have just trying to, you know, the story of them coming up with their name when they go out to Joshua Tree yep. and they're all lying on their backs tripping. I have not, I always picture them as if all four of them are lying like the monkeys, you know, all lying <laughs> on the back next yeah. to each other, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that never happened. I'm sure they were tripping, yeah. but I'm sure they weren't all lying shoulder to shoulder on the ground, ground yeah. looking at the sky. I doubt he even saw an eagle. I mean, I researched <laughs> this, and you don't get many eagles out there. Right. It was probably a buzzard, or it was probably just tripping. I mean, <laughs> when I was tripping once, I, I promise you, I saw UFOs. Not like, is that a UFO? But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it, who knows? Doesn't matter. You know, it's kind of, just going, hey, the actuality, as I call it, the fine detail doesn't particularly concern me. It's the result of it. It's the moment. It's trying to kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, get it, get it. And that isn't necessarily the way any of them would have told it. It's how I'm telling it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, that's true. No, and it's interesting you brought up status quo because part of my show is when I moved to London is to kind of give you U.S. fans you know, there's some great UK bands that never made it in the US or maybe yeah. like your buddies at Def Leppard, they're from the UK, but they're way bigger in the US than they are in their home country. And I got to yeah. ask you a Steve Clark question at some point, but they didn't, it, and you could hear it in your story, like when they first started to get hits on the UK charts, the vaunted, you know, UK charts that they wanted to be a part of. That's why they went with Glyn Johns to Olympic Studios, you know, to kind of be part of this pantheon of the all-time great rockers. But it's very much, it's more of a U.S. success story than it is a U.K. Oh, completely, you know? yeah. You know, but, yeah, then, yeah, completely. But, but going the other way, I mean, we've had Gary Kemp on here. Gary Kemp's got two dozen hits in Europe and the U.K. He's got true in the U.S., right? You know, it's, it's not because they aren't good songs. I always blame the A&R guy, right? So it's, sometimes it's about timing and culture and things like that. And, and then you talked about the show in Hyde Park being – yeah, people are kind of milling around and their crowds weren't quite as big as the Stones or Elton John. And yeah, there's there's girls dancing, but there's no guys dancing. And the people singing along are mostly American girls. Yeah. I mean, they have a fan base, but it's it's not it's not the same story as their success in the UK and Europe versus the US, is it? No, not at all. I mean, I think, you know, again, that's another thing that attracted me about it was that they were uh, this incredible, massive, powerful, mass, a massive, massive. Uh, and because the records were just so fantastic. But, you know, right from the get go in the book, I make the point that people didn't even really know what they looked like. But, you know, this is before MTV. Right. The drummer sings. Oh, no, it's that guy. The droopy was, is that guy? The trucker? No. It's, oh, no, it's that guy. You know, it's, it kind of, they didn't have that Mick Jagger or that Robert Plant or, or that kind of deal. And that made them very interesting in their own right because they weren't those guys. They were these guys. But it does, in a big kind of festival setting, like, say Hyde Park it wasn't a festival but it's outdoors and many 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 people there mm -hmm. it didn't really translate terribly well because it's just four probably six or seven at this point old guys strumming guitars and strolling around really you know uh, nothing wrong with that you know I'm an old guy that strolls around there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> Um, but, no, but I know, but I saw the Stones twice on, on those two shows they did and Duran Duran. I took my eight-year-old daughter and I'm like, this is fun. Look at the show. Look at the spectacle. You know, look at the lights. Look how they get everybody dancing. 
And, and like the way you described the Eagles is the reason I didn't go. I'm like, I don't want to just mill around there with 60,000 people just kind of swaying back and forth to these country zooms. You know, I'm with well, a lot of them. A lot of them weren't even swaying. They were just kind of, you know, like you're outdoors and, you know, you're like, oh, Bill. Hey. Yeah, it was good weather last summer. Yeah. Did you see Bill? Did you see Bill and Mary? Oh, hey. What are they doing now? Oh, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> Oh, should we get a burger? Yeah. yeah. I need a piss. What are we going to do? You know, <laughs> nothing wrong with any of this, but it ain't, it's not powerful in that sense. But I don't know. I, 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 I love it that they were so undeniably huge in America at a time, which for me is like the golden age of rock and roll, really. Yeah. Yeah. And and they were kind of hated by, you know, the people that love Crosby, Stills and Nash and, the people that love Little Feet and Dylan. I mean, I love all those people too, but they got a bad deal. You know, it was similar to Zeppelin in a way. It was like, you know, oh, it's derivative. They're, they're, they're stealing everybody else's ideas and and they're just turning it into hits. Like, like that was easy. The Fiends. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Podcast. <laughs> Look, the, I just you you were part of VH1 series behind the music for lots of different bands over the years. I found those very enlightening, although you can argue they're all kind of the same thing. Like they're nothing. They go up, they fall apart. And then eventually either they get back together or they've redeemed themselves and everything's great. But for Steve Clark, that was not the case. And there was a line in that particular behind the music when you said Steve Clark was the unhappiest rock star millionaire that you ever met in your life and i was just like god why you know he's <laughs> good looking and he's rich and his band killing it especially here in america when we were in high school you couldn't watch mtv for half an hour without having armageddon it or parts of sugar on me or hysteria or whatever you know being on you know it's like so if you didn't like it you better like it because you're going to hear it 10 times a day yeah uh, and yeah. i just and of course i've read you know the stuff and, and 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 listened to the band talk about the demise of steve but you knew him personally i yeah. mean was it was it just his dad and his upbringing that did that they gave him no confidence in himself or why do you think he was like that well, I think um, anybody that's ever had any therapy will know, and even if you haven't had any therapy, and most people will know that the root of our most troubled selves goes back to childhood. Right. And, and Steve had a really messed up childhood. That said, you know, he was the most, probably the most driven member of the band in the early days. He threatened to leave before they had a record deal. He threatened to leave if they didn't start doing some gigs. Right. Because they wanted to practice, practice, practice. Right? Yeah. But they just, oh, do a gig. Oh, no. You know, and he was like, look, we either do a gig or I'm out of here. He really drove them very, very hard. And over a period of time, as their success, really became out of control right with the third album pyromania which was only kept from number one in america by thriller right they sacked pete willis because he was a drunk 
I know Pete, we've talked about this. He, he, you know, he, he's not like that anymore. But back then he was. I think the whole thing became, because when when they sacked Pete, it was because he was a drunk and he wasn't keeping it together. And Steve had an alcohol problem, took a lot of coke, although, you know, they all did. But it was becoming a problem. And I think once Steve realised that you could get sacked for causing that kind of problem, I think it made him very, very nervous. He went into lots of different rehabs. He used to talk to me about it. He said, it's, it's it's impossible because I'm the only guy there who doesn't regret taking coke and getting drunk and having a party every night. And everybody else is like, I woke up on the sidewalk. And he's like, I live on the sidewalk. What's wrong with you? You know, at one point, one therapist told him, asked him if he could dial it down because some of his anecdotes, like being in Las Vegas and winning, you know, 220 grand on the tables and coming out with two hookers and an ounce of coke and Mm -hmm. sounding like fun you know um (laughs) um, but of course it wasn't fun and the capper for me and this is only my opinion was when phil collin joined the group as pete uh willis's replacement because not only is phil an extraordinarily technically gifted guitar player he's a really good singer Mm -hmm. and by the time you get to hysteria mutt langer is really relying on Phil to do pretty much everything. And Matt Langer at this point is, re- is is recording guitar chords, not like you hit a chord, but one string at a time. Mm. Not on every song, but here and there. That's not Steve Park. You know, Steve is like Keith Richards and Phil was like Steve Vai. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it was not quite Steve Vai, but, you know... Him and Mark, yes, Mm -hmm. yeah. On the Pyromania tour, Phil quit drinking. He woke up one morning and he'd bought a Rolex. And Phil is legendarily tight with money. And I think it freaked. I bought a Rolex. I'm never (laughs) drinking. Tag on it, right? Fifteen thousand quid. (laughs) And he's never drunk since. And I think that it, you know, it really made it put in Steve's mind. It really put spotlight on him. Why am I sitting around doing nothing? Why am I the only one drinking? I mean, he wasn't the only one, but Phil wasn't. Right. It was kind mm-hmm. of like the having to deal with this perfect guy and being this completely fucked up guy. Mm-hmm. It really made it worse for him. And I mean, I mean, you know, I was in a similar state at the time, and you know, we would end up in. It was always my room because he was always <laughs> hiding from the others. Right. And he was always like, don't tell the others, don't tell the others. And, um, of course, we'd have these completely insane conversations that would last for 12 hours. So I can't remember every little thing. But I do remember him saying something like, I'm not saying I didn't play on the album, but... And, I, and of course, he did play on the album, but not to the extent that Phil Collin did. And Steve was living in Paris at the time, and they were recording at Whistlelord in Amsterdam, Holland. And you can get a train from Amsterdam to Paris, but it's a long journey. And he said, you know, I'd be there for three weeks doing nothing. So I'd jump on the train and go back to Paris. He said, I'd come in and there'd be on the, no no mobile phone, on the uh, answer machine, it'd be much saying, where are you? We need you now. (laughs) You know, and and I think it just, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I over the you know, writing books about Bon Scott or Kurt Cobain or Jim Morrison or Hendrix, whoever it is. I have spoken to doctors and psychologists, and I, I remember one of them after Cobain died. I was asking him, I said, This guy, he's the biggest, 
biggest rock star in the world. He, he he's historic. He's not just like a Def Leppard. He's mm. he's going to go down in history like a punk Dylan or something. Not yeah. Dylan, you know. He's the Beatles of his generation. He's got a little girl, right? Um, why would he kill himself? And this guy said, pretty much all my all my clients, patients are multi-millionaires. He said, the amount of money you've got has got nothing to do with what's going on in here. Right. The amount of things that from the outside looking in, that guy's got it all. Yeah, but on the inside looking out, I've got nothing. I am mm. less than nothing. I'm a worthless piece of shit. And I think Steve suffered a lot with that. Last time I saw him was just a couple of months before he died. And he was saying to me, I just I just want to go fishing. Will you come fishing with me? Mm. And uh, I've only ever been fishing once, and I hated it. It was so boring. <laughs> I mean, this is English fishing, not American fishing on a big boat catching right. a shark. You know, this is fucking boring river with a rod hoping that a fish this big will come along you know <laughs> and i said yeah sure 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 he said you know we'll just get a couple beers nothing you know just a couple beers fishing i was like sure steve absolutely and i remember walking away thinking fuck i hope he doesn't ring me to do that, that sounds <laughs> so he had this kind of he wanted to get away he he, he kind of craved normality but it, it just wasn't to be I'm, i couldn't believe it when i heard he died i couldn't believe it i was how old was I about? 32? I think he was, you know, he was a year or two younger than me. Yeah. I could, I mean, these days, so many of my friends have gone, but back then, I couldn't believe it. I literally, it felt like the ground was moving under me. And I think he's, he's, he was a truly tragic figure. Mm-hmm. That's the way I see it. And I think he is a kind of a riddle that I was not able to solve. No, it, it was, it was sad. And we, we went to his final home which is what next to the old dairy that became a recording studio and up the street from Eric Clapton. It's like, if he was sitting in his front room, he was closer to the pub across the street than he was to his bed, right? Upstairs, you know? (laughs) I mean, it was like a one-way street in Chelsea. I'm like, if it's like, I can go to bed, but that's 30 steps. I can be at the pub in 12, you know? Uh, And also, because he was a rock star, he had connections everywhere. I was in Rome with them on that. I I did a lot of the Hysteria tour. And I remember we were in Rome, Milan, Italy. I think, I don't fucking know. But um, that night after the show, you know, there's some girl, beautiful Italian girl. Oh, Steve, Steve. Let's have a little heart. Oh, baby. Yeah, no, next time, you know. And like a 30-second thing. And she splits. And he goes, and in his hand was a big bag of Coke. She'd literally just given it to him. He didn't call her or ask her. She just knew. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those guys. He was a bit similar. Like I'd see him on the road. I remember turning up in Denver and he goes, uh, Mick, Mick. And I sort of shake my hand, which we didn't really do that. Be a hug, but mm-hmm. not really that, you know. But we did that. And as I came out, there were two pills in my hand. I don't even know what they were. <laughs> It could have been aspirin, yeah, but it was just kind of like you and me, you know. And, I, and everywhere he went, that was I mean, I've seen that with a lot of rock stars, but he was that guy, uh, and I, I really loved him, I really loved him, and I still miss him. Totally. Well, thank you for sharing that with us, yeah. Thank you so much, Mick. Thank you for everything. Anytime, thanks. Anytime, okay. No. We'll have you back anytime you want, whether you've got something to promote or not. It's really great talking to you two. You are funny. Thanks. Well, thank you, Mick. Thank you for everything. You take care. We'll be thank you, touch. man. Thank you. See you guys again. Best Thanks. of luck with the book. Okay. Bye-bye. You know, they say not to meet your heroes, Jackson. <laughs> 
However, however, when you've got a guy who has helped shape your understanding of some of the bands that you love uh, and someone you've read for decades, you say, OK, well, he's probably just like, you know, he's probably just like the assholes that he covers. Right. <laughs> Not at all. And of course, some of them would disagree. Like, oh, Mick Wallace is an asshole. But uh, well, you can I, tell he's 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 a genuine guy and who loves to write. Yeah. I'm I'm going to go back and read a couple of these other books. He doesn't sound like he has a vindictive bone in his body. It sounds like if you have a problem with what he said or what's in the book, you've got a problem with the truth. That's the deal. And I think that's a lot of these guys don't right. want to hear the truth. Oh, no, no, I'm I'm great. I didn't. Eh, nah, you're you're really not. You were really kind of an asshole in that situation. Right. So, yeah. But to have somebody who's not a fanboy. Who, who wants to tell the story so that somebody from the outside can read it and be enthralled. I really enjoyed that. And I'm definitely looking forward to, to some of his other books. Well, yeah, I can personally recommend the Dio book. Uh, I mean, okay. that, you know, like he said, that was like, Ronnie had already written a lot of it and he kind of had to be beholden to the story he'd written and, and to Wendy who wanted to get mm. it out and things like that. But uh, the, well, I mean, the first Zeppelin book I ever read was Hammer of the Gods back in high school, but his When God Walked the Earth is pretty darn good. And the thing is, you know, my old man always buys me these rock books. And I'm like, Dad, I don't read that much. You know, I'm an American in the 21st century. I don't, I'm just trying to read all my emails, right? I'm trying to keep up with the news. But he got me the Enter Night book, which I haven't read all of yet. You know, the If You Want Blood ACDC book, you know, which I haven't, I don't think I've cracked that one. You know, it's like... <laughs> He has so many good books, but you know I'm a big fan of Classic Rock magazine. Anytime mm -hmm. he writes anything in there, I'm all over it. But well, you're right. I mean, look at this. Look at look at the Eagles. Just look at this book about the Eagles. You tell the truth about the Eagles. Don and Glenn. Don's not with us anymore. I mean, Glenn's not with us anymore. Don and Glenn will be like, "That's bullshit." Mm -hmm. Or sometimes they say they don't say it's lies. They'll say, "Well, you want to hear a story about Don Felder? I could tell you stories that'll make your mustache curl about Don <laughs> Felder, which is in his book." And it's not even like that they're lying. It's like he crossed the line. He's telling stories that nobody mm -hmm. could talk about. Like when he gets into the fight with Randy Glenn because he doesn't want to sing "Take It to the Limit," and and Don's like, "Back off, cops! This is personal. This yeah. is private, and you don't need to know about this." It's like, right. You're a public figure. When you do stuff like this, people want to know. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's interesting too with the um it, like I said before, nobody was really the nobody was really the bad guy and nobody was really the good guy. You had two guys who were driven, they mm -hmm. knew what they wanted, they knew how to get there. And then you had two guys who, you know, they could only put up with so much, and then they just flamed out either for what was going on in the band or what was going on at their in their personal lives that mm -hmm. they, they just couldn't do it anymore. You know, when you start to have little kids and a family and you're going to be gone for uh, yeah for long periods of time. And, you know, they were saying Randy Meisner, he still lived in Nebraska right? right, with his family. Like, that doesn't seem like, how could you even do that? Like, that's so far away from the band and the life that you were leading really then you're into i've got like you know dad at home in nebraska mode <laughs> then i've got the what he would call life in the fast lane with you know you get on the plane right. and all of a sudden there's ladies and coke and booze and and he's not I, turning I, any of it down it's not like correct. sorry i'm a family man correct i'm gonna go up here to the front of the plane while you guys do that no he was right. part of all not like famously Charlie Watts, who never did any of that and was with the same woman until the day he died. That was not the Randy Meisner story. No, and that's what Glenn is quick to bring up, you know, or he was. He's like, well, Randy was with two young girls and a bottle of vodka all night. Then he didn't mm -hmm. think he could sing the songs. Like, you're not afraid to sell him out. But if someone <laughs> sells you out, 
you know, <laughs> you're all over. The, the only thing about the book is, you know, he did not, you know, the, he went straight from their upbringing, getting together in the 70s, basically till the end in 1980, where they walked off stage mm. ready to fight. And, and you know, and then it all kind of went away. He didn't get into the reunion in like the 1994 time when we were in college, which was a really big deal. Right. And he didn't get into the business side of it because what basically happened was they decided to get them back together. The five of them who were together at the end there, Don and mm -hmm. Glenn, Felder, Walsh, who was just coming out of rehab, who was in rough shape, yeah. and Tim Schmidt. Well, Tim hadn't been in that long. He'd been there a few years. He only was on one album. Like you said, he was just happy to be there. Walsh was out of it, but Felder had been one of the members who had an equal share in the Eagles. Mm. And then when they got back together, Glenn basically said, look, Irving, here's the way it's going to work. Don and I are going to get more money than the other guys. We're going to get double shares. So instead of five equal shares, there are now seven shares. I get two. Henley gets two. Each of those other guys get one, which not only gives them less money at the tank, but it also means if there's a vote, if Glenn and Don always vote together, which they basically do, well, that's four votes to the other three. It doesn't right. matter what the other guys want, right? Felder had a problem with this because he has paperwork that says you get an equal share of the Eagles. And, and they're like, no, we're not putting this back together if it's that way. Mm -hmm. And so he had a problem. He had a problem. He had a problem. Say, okay, fine. I'll sign it. Fine. Let's just do it. Let's get into it. And then when they did the selected works box set, the 72 to 99, then they made it so that they got triple the money. And, and, and that to me, suddenly I get the problem. Like, okay, we go on tour. There's a company, you get better shares. Fine. I'll sign that. It's like, this is the music we made a long time ago. And the royalties are the royalties. And now you want more royalties for stuff that I recorded 25 years ago. I'm not with that. So he sues them. And so then eventually Glenn's like, you know what? Don Felder doesn't sing. All the girls who come to our show won't know that it's not him and Stuart Smith because he's not singing any of the songs. They would hear it if Tim Schmidt's not there because, you right. know, they'll hear it if Don's not there. But Felder, they won't miss. So let's get rid of him. Now there's only six shares, and I got two of them. And Joe and Tim won't speak up because they know it'll happen to them too, right? Mm -hmm. So now I got all the power that I always wanted. He didn't get and, into that. <laughs> well, and and no, he did not. But speaking of that, there was an interesting story about how they put together a company for the non-publishing stuff. Yeah, that you know the merchandise and everything else, and that was split five ways. Five yeah. ways, everybody was equal. And Randy Meisner says, hey, now, wait a minute. This guy, you know, Felder just got here and he gets an equal share. And Felder's like, I thought you were my friend. And now the first chance you get, you're going to put the knife in my back and say, this guy doesn't qualify for everything. That was Bernie. So, yeah. I'm sorry, Bernie. That's yeah. right. So it's, it, it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's the same thing. When it comes down to money, it's, you know, you were, you, Don, were totally cool with taking equal share coming into the band. But then when it's your turn to get raked over the coals, you're upset about it. It's just the same story over and over and over again. It's human nature. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that we forget about with these rock and roll guys is that they're just people and they have feelings and they get hurt and been out of shape. And there was a story about how when they were in Miami doing hotel, California, Don got mad and he was like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving and I'm going back. He wasn't with the house. He, I think he went to go with someone else mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, so then Don, I mean, not Don, but Glenn and Joe kind of get buddy, buddy. And Don's like, well, you know, does he like me better now? You know, or does he like Joe better? now? it's like, come on, dude. It's just, you can't human nature ruins all of these things. Feelings are going to get hurt. It's never going to be the four guys riding into the sunset. It's going to fall apart. I know. I know. And then you got Henley and Fry. Okay. Yeah. They're leading the way. So then to get more power in the band, Felder co-ops Joe Walsh is like, look, they started as a country band. Now that they got the two of us, now we're killing it as a real rock band. Hotel California, they couldn't have made that 72 before we were in the band. Mm-hmm. Now they got the biggest juggernaut in the world, and it's because of us. It's because of our guitar playing, not just their songwriting, you know, kind of thing. It's always like, yeah, you know, we're, we're just as much a part of this as they are. Like, <laughs> no, you're not, you know, and so, God, it's... Yeah. And it's it's so up for grabs. It's not like, you know, when you found a, a law firm and then people become partners and they come in and out like that. It's also more fluid, you know? Right. Right. And and it's and it's more it becomes something that you never wanted it to be. When when you when they were all sitting together in the troubadour, if you told them the story how this was gonna end, they would say, Absolutely not. No way, dude. It's it's you know, one for all and all for one. We're going, you know, if we can't agree on everything, this is not gonna happen. No, dude. You know, this is it, it's going to end up in ashes. Yeah. And if you can't hang, you're out. Well, that's our chat with Mick Wall, celebrated rock author and author of the new book, Life in the Fast Lane, which is out July 11th through Diversion Books. And I got to tell you guys, we got an advanced copy of it. It's a great read. All of his books are a great read. Look, anybody can write a book and say, on this date, they recorded this song. And then on this date, their album went platinum or they played this show. But what Mick does is he creates a story. He creates a world that maybe you weren't a part of, just like we weren't part of the early 70s at the Troubadour and the L.A. rock scene because we weren't alive. He can take you back there. He can set the tone tell you what everybody's dealing with, and then it makes more sense how all these characters get together and how they create the music that they do. Fun book. And yes, a lot of people know a lot of stories about the Eagles. It doesn't get too much into the dirt, but in most of the Eagles stories that we've heard, let's face it, Henley and Fry are kind of painted as the bad guys, but they're in charge and they write the songs. So then maybe the other guys are painted as bad guys if you're a big Don Henley and Glenn Fry fans. And like Jackson said throughout the show, there's no really bad guys and good guys. There's just people. There's just people out there trying to do their best, trying to do their thing, trying to make it in the world the best way they know how. And Glenn and Don, well, they're the alphas. They're the ones who are ready to push forward. Not to mention they're the ones with the songwriting talent and the voices that would carry that band for decades and decades. So, so much thanks to Mick Wall. Incredible rock writer. Great stories. Really appreciate him going a little bit on the Steve Clark thing. I have a feeling that if we were to meet up with Mick in a pub and not just over Zoom, we could, well, we'd have to ply him with alcohol, I'm sure, but we could get him to regale us with stories from over the years for hours and hours and hours. And hopefully we'll have a chance to do that again real soon. So as usual, folks, we want to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? you got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Or I think we're on Facebook. You let us know the stories, bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books that you want to hear us review, and we'll work on getting them on the show. And we have to give a big thanks to Pantheon Podcast for making us part of the family. 
And of course, thank our incredible sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Visit RareVinyl.com, use the code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, and save yourself 10% off your orders. They ship everywhere all around the world. Next week, gosh, I don't know, folks. we got a lot of great stuff going on. We do have some more authors coming up that I'm excited about sharing with you. We've got some more album reviews. And, you know, we like to do some that are around 40 years old or 50 years old. So we got a few coming up that we have already recorded that we are excited about. We're going to have some more special guests on. Lots of great stuff here on The Wolf to look forward to. So until next time, to all you rockers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.